You're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, this is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got a great guest on today, Jay Famiglietti. Uh Jay uh, heads the Global Institute for Water Security. He was a senior water scientist at NASA and JPL, professor at UCI, uh, and uh he also has a What About Water podcast, but uh, most importantly, uh, Jay was on the Bill Maher show. So, uh, you, you know, he has real credibility. There's no doubt he's a he's a national celebrity on water. So welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks very much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Jay, uh, I'm based in California and you spent some time out here as well. So. Tell us a little bit about uh, kind of the water crisis we're facing uh, here in California. It seems to be rising to yet ahead again. Uh, And uh, your Bill Maher segment I was looking at was done in, I think, 2014. And we were in a crisis point at that point in time. Are we in a worse crisis now than we were in in 2014? Yeah, I think I think we are. So, you know, we go through these cycles in, in California, in the Western U.S. of sort of, you know, some wet periods and then some long dry periods, some wet periods and some long dry periods. But but the thing that's happening now is those those dry periods are getting longer and longer. So I don't even call it drought anymore. Some people call it aridification, meaning getting drier. I call it chronic water scarcity. Um, you know, the challenge that we have is that um, in California, is that we try to do too much with the water that we we have and the too much is trying to grow food for the nation you know food for north america mostly using water from from california think about that um so that we are really draining our this important reserve of the groundwater the groundwater is the water that's stored underneath the ground in, in aquifers, uh, rock and soil layers that can store water. So, you know, it's a big challenge and we're trying to come to grips with it. And, you know, we're seeing it play out in real time. Well, uh, what do you think about the actions that, uh, say, the governor in California has taken in uh, recent months and years to to address this process? I mean, there have been a lot of criticism saying that he hasn't done enough. Uh, farmers are still growing uh, almonds and uh, other crops that take a ton of water, and we haven't really addressed the main uh, cause of our water shortage, which is, as you said, agriculture, which is taking what ninety percent of the water California uh, uses. Eighty, ninety percent. You know, it varies uh, uh, with time of the year. It varies around the world, but it's you know, eighty is a good a good solid figure. First, I think we should be clear. That we all love to eat and, and we need to eat and we need to produce food for a growing population and that takes a lot of water um so that means that we need to sustain the limited resources that we have in the case of california and now we're seeing this in arizona as well we're not getting the snow and the rain that we used to get so we're having this increasing reliance on on groundwater this is a problem because the groundwater is not being replenished we use way more than uh, as being replenished on an annual basis. So with respect to the governor, with respect to any governor uh, or any country, if you're not addressing um, the food water nexus, the water use for food, you're missing the biggest part of the problem. I think we've shown in LA when I was there, cities can be sustainable, everybody can cut back, they let the lawns die and uh, you know don't don't um, 
wastewater uh, around the house, uh, conserve. But when it comes to food, um, that's the lion's share of the water. And so that needs to be really reined in, whether that means doing things more efficiently, um, switching from sprinkler irrigation to drip irrigation or deep drip irrigation. Um, we need to address the issue of um, the crops that are grown in say the Imperial Irrigation District. Uh, I'm thinking about alfalfa, uh, used a tremendous amount of water and then shipped off to other countries. Uh, I think we need to really address whether this is uh, something we can sustain in the United States moving forward. Well, how do we do that? Do we just say raise the price of water for farmers and say, hey, if you're growing certain crops that uh, your water rates are just going to be higher if you, you know, you can have the free market, but you can't, uh, you know, <laughs> we're not going to subsidize you growing almonds or alfalfa at uh, rates that are below what is really a market rate for the water, which is really much higher Uh then they're getting this water at way below market rates. So let the market, uh, you know, let them bear the market cost of the water, which I, I don't think they are bearing. Is that is that a fair? No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. Um, a lot of groundwater is, um, when it comes to groundwater, it's often essentially free. If you own the property, you can dig the well and, and pump as much as you want, even if that means you're drawing in water from beneath your, your neighbor's property. Um, so, you know, I Let's think the answer to that. Let me just stop you right there for a second, because there's yeah, a principle yeah. I, I believe in in oil well drilling is that if you are sucking the oil from your neighbor's property, I think you owe them some compensation. Uh, wow! You know, but in, I in didn't the know water, that. In the water world, you're saying that there's no compensation. You get you get zero. Nothing. Uh-huh. You can if you own the property, you can drill the well and you can start up your own bottling company and you can pump twenty four seven. Now, that said, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is coming online in California. So that could be one control where um, just briefly, the state has been carved up into a number of groundwater sustainability agencies. Each agency has or will be submitting a groundwater sustainability plan. And then it's within and there's somewhere between, I don't know, 150, 200 of these agencies. Um, and each plan has to be approved by the state, and then it's up to the agency to determine within within its boundaries, and the, they're the boundaries of the say the, uh, the the groundwater basin. It's up to the agency to determine how it comes into that uh, that uh, comes in line with its sustainability plan. But that's you know that's the the time frame on that is super slow. It's we're talking about twenty years before there's. Um, we're allowing 20 years for the groundwater sustainability agencies to come into um, uh, come into sustainability. But I agree, there's a lot that can be done on the financial side. Water is undervalued. Um, I think sometimes I think when we look at the Colorado River Basin, the United States doesn't have a great national water plan. We don't. And in times like this, you realize, okay, we need to actually have, maybe we need a water czar, someone cabinet level or, um, or some agency that, you know, that can, can make some of these decisions that are so critical for the, for the country. Right now, everything is sort of divided up by state, um, especially when it comes to groundwater and, or by river basin. 
And, you know, look where we are in the Colorado River Basin. It's not working. Well, uh, which uh, federal agencies have any sway over this? Uh, who's, whose umbrella does this come under? Department of Interior? or? Yeah. So, you know, that's also another problem with water. And this is not unique to the United States. This is true around the world. Water touches so many different things that it's sort of managed by perhaps too many different agencies. So, sure, Department of Interior um, and the U.S. Geological Survey, um, you know, NOAA and the Weather Service uh, should have a piece of it. You know, EPA on the water quality side. So right away. And then you've got state level, county level, city level management and data collection going on. So right away, you see that there's all these in uh, these groundwater sustainability agencies that I just mentioned. So you've got a lot of different sort of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And I think that's really worked uh, against us. We need we need a vision and, and leadership. And so getting back to, you know, the Newsom administration, I think it's really been a drop off since the Governor Brown administration in terms of water leadership and vision. Well, in terms of, I mean, uh, one thing comes to mind, it's a bit of a national security issue. I mean, if you're going to declare a state of emergency, it seems as though this could be something that uh, would fall into that category. I mean, certainly, aren't we in an emergency situation in uh, the Western United States right now? Absolutely. We're talking about energy security. We're talking about food security. We're talking about this crazy seesaw from from colossal drought to these incredible floods to to fires. I mean, it's fairly apocalyptic. So yeah, it's an emergency situation. Well, shouldn't uh, President Biden be declaring an emergency and and, uh, using some emergency powers to, uh, you know, do as you say, which is kind of have somebody at a cabinet level uh, start calling the shots because this is a cataclysmic type event if we do not uh, manage it more effectively. Yeah, I, I agree. I've actually been thinking about writing an opinion piece along those lines. And basically the things that we're talking about, that all the stuff is coming together. It's happening all over the world. I mean, it's not unique to the United States. It's not unique to the Southwest. Certainly it's happening in Europe right now. Um, and this national level leadership is really, really important. And we don't have it and, and we're paying the price. Well, some uh, I, I just saw a piece on Germany and Germany, we normally think of being kind of uh, green and lush, uh, maybe a little Seattle-esque. Uh, but they were talking about how the groundwater levels are sinking at a phenomenally fast rate in Germany, of all places, which is fairly far north. And you'd think that they get a fair amount of rain, but uh, it's uh, it's a tremendous emergency there. Yeah, they are really suffering. I just flew over Germany. I was coming back from World Water Week in in Stockholm. Um, And things were incredibly brown on the ground. One thing I actually was pleased to see was that they let a golf course actually go brown. Um, So I felt good about that. That's real progress. Uh, Well, uh, (laughs) you're listening to uh, Climate Change, and uh, this is Matt Matter, and your host, I've got Jay uh, Famietti, and uh, we'll be back in just one minute. (laughs) 
You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter and your host, and I've got Jay Famietti uh, on the program. Uh, as I said earlier, Jay is uh, uh, the head of the Global Institute for Water Security, professor at UCI, and uh, had also worked as senior water scientist at NASA and JPL. Uh, one of the things, Jay, we were talking about at the break was getting industry engaged. And I know one of the things that uh, is kind of happening uh, on the air front or the carbon emission front is SEC type reporting regarding the emissions so that we can kind of track and trace and and there's some kind of uh, sense of the uh, liabilities for these entities that are using or polluting at a certain level. How about uh, the tracking of water usage um, in the financials so that uh, so investors know kind of what they're getting into. Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm talking about, Matt. I like to say that uh, water is the new carbon, not in terms of importance of, to climate change. Of course, carbon is critically important, but I, I mean, it's next in the terms of accounting. Um, and industry is going to be uh, going to come under increasing pressure to do this transparent accounting of water use the same way that uh, it has been uh, with respect to carbon. Um, and look, I don't think, I, th- I think it's critically important, again, because industry uses most of the water. It's most of the food industry. It's around 80%. So we can't move the needle on, on water security without that, without that monitoring and measurement and accounting by, by industry. You mentioned SEC, um, is putting pressure on CDP, which is formerly called the Climate Disclosure Project, but now they just go by CDP, making recommendations for building frameworks for the type of reporting that industry is going to have to do. Um, and you also mentioned investors. And so actually my group uh, at the Global Institute for Water Security just led a, a two-year report with a nonprofit series, CERES, called the Global Assessment of Private Sector Impacts on Water, and it's specifically written for investors. So investors can look by sector and say, you know, look at whatever the apparel sector, see what the risks are, see what the impacts are with respect to water. And then they can go and talk to potential um, clients in different companies and say, listen, we're not going to invest unless you improve, you know, get rid of this process that we know injects too many microplastics into rivers. You get rid of this process that we know, you know, causes too much groundwater depletion. So that investor angle is incredibly important. Well, definitely following the money. And I think that uh, getting social awareness at a higher level um, does help. And it's, uh, it's definitely kind of helped in the carbon emitting industries that I think they're starting to track down uh, where this, where the actors are that are doing the highest amount of polluting and uh, transferring assets away from from those uh, those companies, and I think it's helping on the supply chains, kind of down in places that uh, maybe in say Peru or something like that, where they might be uh, experiencing similar problems to California. Saying, "Hey, what you should do a better job managing your." your resources in areas outside the U.S. I agree. I think that industry is going to come under increasing uh, scrutiny, pressure, um, 
to be looking up and down its supply chain, again, just like we've done with carbon uh, and greenhouse gas emissions. I think water is is you know right behind them um, on 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 this global effort to to strive for not only reduced emissions but you know water, food, energy, sustainability. So what are the uh, what's on the horizon with the SEC? Is anybody pushing to get water uh, into the reporting of publicly traded companies? Because uh, as uh, has been said, you can't manage what you don't measure. Right. So, yeah, I think there is. It's kind of coming under the climate umbrella. And so a lot of and this that's fine, um, because a lot of what we experience um, as climate change comes through water, and I'm talking about really specifically here the changing extremes of of flooding and drought. Um, and so, I think that's uh, one of the ways that it's it's uh, making its way into the SEC reporting is through companies having to plan uh, for this increasing variability, uh, interruptions in in supply chains. Uh, disruptions to labor workforces um, because of uh, drought, flood-related issues like forest fires and and uh, contamination of water. So uh, we saw a, a gargantuan uh, apocalyptic-type flood in Pakistan recently, and uh, I had on the show uh, a couple of people from that area as well as. Um, Dr. Leslie Field, who's a scientist uh, teacher uh, up at Stanford, and she has a project to kind of uh, the Arctic ice project, which was to uh, preserve the Arctic ice. And I don't know if you've been familiar with her, her work, but she's kind of like putting silicon on the ice to extend its life and increase its brightness to throw off more sunlight. Uh, what types of things do you think uh, are going to be workable solutions to help uh, deal with those types of problems. So that's a great one. I hadn't actually heard about, hadn't heard about that, but um, you bring up this, the, the glacial melt and the ice melt problem. Um, and, and it's, it's huge. So we've got uh, Greenland and Antarctica, the big ice caps. Um, and we also have the glaciers that are on land and they're, they are all melting away. Whatever we can do to track those, whether there's, whether it's technology uh, whatever we can do to slow the melting. So the technology just mentioned, we're sort of increasing their reflectivity, I think is great. You know, the biggest thing though, is raining in those greenhouse gases. There's no question. There's, I, you know, I, I'm not fond of saying this, but I believe it is that um, we're really going to have a difficult time ending the global water crisis. And so really our, our best option is to manage our way through it and to try to minimize the, minimize the damage. Right. Uh, to, to one, uh, you know, commentator I've, uh, or maybe more has talked about kind of the saving some of the water that we do get and that runs off here in LA into the ocean when it does rain and kind of channeling that water through rather than through the concrete uh, curbs that we have and, and uh, to channel it through a, a system where there's more uh, plants and things of that nature so that the, the earth sucks in that water versus 
billions of gallons of water gets uh, poured out into the ocean every year from L.A., which, you know, we can hardly afford to to lose billions of gallons of water. What's the what's the likelihood? What's the uh, is that a realistic solution? How could we effectuate that? Uh, so I think that it will be very helpful in metropolitan regions like uh, the Los Angeles region. It's not going to help us with our global picture with agriculture because it just uses so much water. But within cities, I think it's really important. I mean, we made, you know, we did what we thought was the right thing at the time. And LA is a great example of all the concrete line channels for flood control. So we thought that was the right thing to do. We'll, you know, capture this flood water and we'll send it, we'll send it out of town. But what we didn't realize was that we were uh, getting rid of all these very natural uh, processes by which groundwater can be recharged, whether it's along floodplains, whether it's along uh, river uh, river channels. You know, I would love to see uh, big sections of the L.A. River, you know, getting rid of that concrete and to allow for infiltration and recharge of the groundwater. So I think where that can be done, it's really important. The problem is it's very expensive. Someone has to buy that land. Um, some places, some cities are thinking about dual use. They build a soccer field on a floodplain, and then when it, you know, when there's a flood, you know, you let the you let the the water infiltrate into the ground. I think it's achievable. I think it's really an important component of uh, metropolitan water management. Yeah, it's, obviously, we need to put our money where our mouth is and, and looking at the future. If we don't do things like that, what what does the future hold for for cities? Future like is not good if we don't do that. Look where we are, California in the time. So, you know, we haven't talked much about the satellite uh, work that I do. But in the time that I have been um, looking at satellite data, particular satellite mission called the NASA GRACE, Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment Mission. We're talking about 20 years. In that entire time period, California has done nothing but lose water. Um, and a lot of that is because of the, the groundwater and the, the groundwater depletion for, for agriculture. So we don't really have a choice, right? We, we, have, to, we have to come up with solutions. So uh, do you see that happening? You see L.A. or uh, the surrounding cities really getting on board and, and making those changes that are going to be necessary to kind of protect our water supplies? Well, again, I think we're doing a great job in our cities. I really I really do. And I think cities are fundamentally sustainable. It gets back to this issue of just the huge amount of water that we use for agriculture and, you know, what what crops we choose to grow, um, where we send that, how much water they use, are we doing it efficiently, and, and where we send that water. And so that all has to be dialed back. Well, I guess that's that's the tough thing is uh, the political reality is it seems as though Governor Newsom seems uh, unwilling to face down the ag interests uh, and make the tough calls. But uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Jay... Famietti uh, on the program, and uh, we'll be right back in just one minute. This is Matt Matter, your host of A Climate Change. I've got Jay Famietti on the program, and uh, Jay's a host of a podcast, What About Water? 
And along with uh, having been a NASA scientist, uh, Jay, can you tell us a little bit about the science that uh, you're doing uh, with NASA and and uh, what type of work uh, is being done with the satellite imaging uh, that you've done over there for 20 years? Sure, Matt. I've been working with a satellite mission called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, or GRACE. Um, and I've been working with it since before it launched, so starting in about 1996 or 97 with one of my first graduate students, Matt, Matt Rodell, who's now himself a scientist at NASA, and continues up to this day. And um, GRACE is unusual for a satellite mission in that it, it functions more like a scale um, than, say, uh, like a scale in the sky, say, compared to, I don't know, a camera or a telescope or something like that. And so it's literally weighing the places that are gaining or losing water mass on a monthly basis over the whole world. And so it allows us to see um, the trends, right? So not only can we see the monthly ups and downs, but since we've been looking at it for 20 years, we can see, okay, what are the, what are the long-term trends? What are the places that are gaining? What are the places that are losing? And the picture that comes out is, is really compelling. Would you like me to just pop it up right now? Yes, please. That would be great. So I also want to say that I'm quite fortunate to um, have, you know, have my career sort of, fall into the sweet spot. Let's say the Grace mission sort of fell into the sweet spot of my career. It was just when I was starting as an assistant professor and, um, you know, still going strong today uh, as I'm in it, you know, headed towards the, the latter part of my career. So can you see this? You want me to explain it? Yeah. Why don't you explain it? Cause a lot of our uh, listeners are uh, on the radio. So okay. happy seeing All us. right. <laughs> so um, I am, uh, showing a map that uh, is constructed from 20 years of NASA GRACE data. And it's a global map, so we're looking at all the continents. Um, and we basically see uh, a color scale that goes from uh, deep red, which is losing a lot of water, to sort of, you know, whitish to blue and then deep blue, which is gaining a lot of water. Um, and what we see, first of all, uh, is a lot of red, which means that there are a lot of places that are losing a lot of water. There's the two main places that don't actually, are not showing up on this map are the Greenland and, and Antarctic ice sheet. So they are calculated separately and they're not actually in this map, but they are melting away and, and contributing an awful lot of water to sea level rise. But looking at the rest of the continents, we're looking at um, a few main categories of um, reasons why we're gaining or losing water. There's a big one that's related to climate change. And, and as you see, like all through the middle of this map, there's a, there's a lot of red. Um, those are the mid-latitude, the dry uh, regions of the world that are getting drier, just like is predicted by uh, the IPCC models. We see if we look across the tropics, there's a lot more blue. So like uh, Ecuador and across the upper Amazon, across the Sahel and Africa, and even parts of India and uh and Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, lots of blue there. That's the low latitudes. That's the wet areas getting wetter. Um, we used to see that the high latitudes, Canada, where I, where I live, and uh, northern Eurasia, and especially Russia, until recently, that was fairly blue. So that was another wet area that was getting wetter. Now we see that it's red. And I think that is because we haven't, this, these are relatively new data and haven't really done the research yet, but I think what we're seeing up there at the high latitudes, uh, 
is things like snow melting, permafrost melting, ice melting, and this water you know, disappearing from, from the landscape. Superimposed on that broad pattern, we've got these darker red spots for too little water or places that are losing a lot of water, or dark blue spots for places that are, that are gaining a lot of water. That's a little bit of the flooding and drought stuff that we're, you know, we know is getting stronger. So you can see, um, you know, the um, the Okavanga region in Africa, the Sahel region in Africa getting wetter. You see the Great Lakes regions getting wetter. You see southern India, the Indian monsoon is getting stronger. Um, so you see some of those spots. But you see an awful lot of red. And that can be because of drought. For example, the Ukraine drought has been in these data for, for a long, long time. Um, you see the European drought that's, that's quite strong now. But, you know, you see those deeper reds, and a lot of those are related to the world's major aquifer system. So uh, the Central Valley in California, the southern high plains with the southern Ogallala aquifer, the Arabian Peninsula, all the groundwater loss that's happening in Syria, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, and India border, northwestern India, groundwater depletion hotspot, Bangladesh, Tian Shen region. I, mean, I can go on and on. Beijing, uh, let North me, China. Let me just interject there for a second, uh, Jay, because yeah. uh, as I recall, you did some work uh, back around the time of the Syrian civil wars and before it started, and and said uh, to a lot of the policymakers, "There's a drought going on in Syria." And it looks like, you know, there may be civil unrest because there, there's going to be food insecurity going on there. Uh, and and I look at, say, like uh, the map here and it shows you know, all the American Southwest, but also extending down into Mexico, all the way down in through Central America. You know, if we're talking about that whole area having food insecurity, that's uh, that's a lot of people that could be. Uh, kind of, you know, at our borders very soon. Yeah. Saying, yeah. hey, we. Need well, to I think in. they're already there. Yeah. Right. I think, uh, you know, I uh, uh, have talked to some experts in climate migration, and there is a lot of climate migration that's coming from Central America. And in the opinion of some of the experts, it's actually a lot of it has to do with water and the lack of avail availability of water. And so you can see it on the on these maps. I think that. Um, Countries that don't think about, and United States is a great, great example, and, and Canada, another great example, because people might pass through the United States and try to go to Canada. Um, and so cities and countries that are not thinking about climate migration, so look at the Middle East, right? We already know there's been a tremendous amount of migration that's happened there, or out of, or out of there, is Syria, as you mentioned. So countries that are not thinking about climate refugees, right, climate migrants, uh, as part of their climate adaptation plans, um, you know, it's 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 really being short sighted. It's it's uh, right. We you know, are things for you can see are, from this map. Yeah, we're a global <laughs> community and, and we can't yeah. expect that, uh, you know, just what's happening in somebody else's backyard isn't going to affect us. That's right. And as you can see from this map, it's happening everywhere. So, you know, it's part of part of the discussion. It's not just water. You're right. It's what are the implications, part of the discussion of the implications of this map. And people from different fields will look at this map and see completely different things. People will see climate migration. People will see conflict. 
I look at it, I see challenges with food and water availability because, you know, I'm a hydrologist. So there's a lot that's really embedded in here. Right. So what's, uh, what do you see as kind of the next level as to what we can do about these problems and on, on both a local s- scale and here in California as well as nationally, because we have uh, national water problems. Uh, California is yeah. the only state with problems. Sure. Well, so I think um, several things. I think we need to um, have broader discussions that involve, you know, I'm often feel like I'm in a silo, but I'm glad to talk to media people like yourself to help you know, understand and get the message out. But I think we need more transdisciplinary engagement. And by that, I mean, not only different fields, but I mean, different types, you know, different sectors working together, public sector, private sector, nonprofits, academics. I think that's critical that we understand what's going on and work together because we can't, we can't do it alone. Um, You know, again, I think California historically has been in really good shape in terms of its its pathway to water sustainability, I think this agriculture thing that's going on right now with Governor Newsom has to be has to be fixed, um, because again, there's no you know there's no water security without without dealing with the agricultural uh, uh, side of it. And let me one ask of the you, things let me that I just interject sure. here for a second yeah, sure. and say, is there any kind of action that you see legislatively or by the executive branch in California that's effectively addressing kind of the uh, the agricultural water problem? Well, I think the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act could do that. Okay, mm-hmm. but the jury is out because of the long time scale. Um, you know, it's it'll be a long time. It's kind of an experiment. And it'll be a long time before we know if it's working. And so if there were a change that, you know, I I would make if I were empowered uh, and didn't get shot, I would change that timeline from you know 20 year implementation to a 10 year implementation. Okay. Right. The full implementation, trying to bring your aquifer into sustainability. It's to the 20 year timeline helped get it passed. Because it was, you know, there's a lot of comfort in uh, the slow adaptation, um, and that's important. But my fear is, and we're seeing it now. I mean, before Sigma Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is getting fully implemented, we're having more and more wells drilled, and we're getting actually faster groundwater depletion than we were getting before. So my fear is there'll be nothing left to sustain. Yeah, that's uh, that is certainly a something we need to be concerned about. And quite frankly, I don't think that many Californians really understand the ominousness of this problem and and uh, how tragic it will be if we don't manage it and manage it effectively. So, um, you know, I appreciate your great work on that front. You're listening to A Climate Change, and this is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Jay Famietti. Uh, Jay and I will be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Jay Famietti on the program today. Uh, Jay, a NASA scientist, uh, UCI professor, and uh, host of the What About Water podcast. So, uh, you know, you should all tune in and take a listen to Jay's podcast, What About Water. Uh, but Jay, uh, last segment here, I want to focus on solutions. What can we do? 
as uh, listeners to this uh, program, citizens, average voters, uh, holders of uh, stocks, whatever it is, what what are the things that we can do going forward to uh, to improve the situation? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I think first of all, um, the biggest thing is to just to be aware, understand the situation, understand where you get your water from in California, what how much is coming from snowmelt in the mountains and and through rivers and and in reservoirs, how much is coming from groundwater, you know, what sort of facilities does your city or town have? Is there sewage recycling? Is there desalination? Really understand that. Because if you understand what the sources are of your water, uh, and, and then, you know, you see, for example, there's no snow up in the mountains, then you, it's much easier to accept that there's a, a, a need for, uh, for conservation. So that awareness, I think, is really important. Of course, there's always the things that we can do in the home. And if you're in Southern California or the Western part of the U.S. and you're watering your grass, um, you should probably stop um, because about 50% of home water use in the in, in places that irrigate like the Western U.S. or Western North America uh, is, is grass. So um, think about native landscaping. Then if you can afford it, of course, the um, uh, more efficient appliances, anything you can do to save energy is going to save water because it takes a lot of energy to heat and treat and transport water. Um, so those are all those are all individual things. Dietary changes. Uh, the bigger the animal, <clears throat> hey, you know I love my I love my hamburgers, but I try to keep them under under control. I like to think of it like the bigger the animal, the more intensive. You know, the bigger the water footprint. So like a cow requires more water than a chicken, right? Or you know cows take the most. You know then like pigs and then chickens. Um, switch to a plant-based diet. So there's uh, lots of things that can, um, can help save water there. It's really, really important that we start demanding that our elected officials have and share with us their platform on water sustainability. Um, it is such a huge part of what happens especially in these water stressed regions that we've been talking about today. It, it, it should be front and center and, it, and it's not. And they, you know, the, the, uh, the topics, the hot button issues are often dictated by politics. This is one that we should be demanding, right? What are you going to do about water? What are you going to do for our state? Whether you're talking about a mayor in a city or a governor or a Senator, let's, let's understand what's happening. Um, and yeah, on the investor side, I think it's critical. This is a lever that has not been, has been well utilized in the CO2, uh, in the efforts to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions, but has not been well utilized. It's only beginning to be utilized on the water side. So let's get investors mobilized to require industry to do that transparent water accounting to better value water and the impacts of industry on water, including contamination and the disruption of ecosystem services, but also the risk to industry from climate change. These are all things that need to be valued and investors need to be talking with companies about, um, about what their plans are. 
Jay, you'd said uh, that you were working on uh, a project regarding something on that front and a report. Uh, kind of what's the status of that and, and what work did you do to uh, kind of move that forward? So, you know, that work grew out of, um, and I just got back from the same meeting, you know, a few years ago, I went to the World Water Week in Stockholm in, in 2019. And, and World Water Week, it's not a uh, scientific meeting, but it's a, it's really a meeting where a lot of nonprofits and NGOs come together. And after a few years of going to that meeting, I recognized that there were not a lot of scientists there, that the NGOs and the nonprofits really needed good science, because they are often the ones that industry looks to for information on water risk. Um, so I had a conversation with uh, Monica Fryman, who at that time was with Ceres, and we talked about how I could support their work. And, and, and what, what emerged was that we would do a, a literature, a monstrous literature review of industry impacts on water. And by monstrous, it took us two years, and we started with about <laughs> three million papers. Um, I'm not kidding. And but we use some data science to get it down to, uh, you know, cluster all the different topics and understand the different industries and get it down to several hundred papers that we could actually read. So we distilled that down into a report. It's called the Global Assessment of Private Sector Impacts um, on Water. And it's on our USASC website, water.usask.ca. And it's on the series website, CERES.org. And the purpose of that report is to arm investors so that they can have meaningful discussions with industry about their relationship with water. Tell us again, uh, just because uh, you uh, said it so quickly, and I want to make sure that our listeners get it, uh, this global report, uh, what's the name of it again? And uh, sure. the website addresses again, yeah. where we can go look at it. Sure. It's the Global Assessment of Private Sector Impacts on Water. And there are two places that you can get it. You can get it at our University of Saskatchewan website. So that's water.usask.ca or at the series website, ceres.org. Okay. That uh, sounds like a good report and something that uh, people should be more aware of because we we would be well served to know what the industries are that are using the most water and and how they could limit it and there there certainly are technological means by which uh, industry could reduce their water usage right yeah and i think also matt i think we're going to see a lot more on the consumer expectation side uh so you know for I'll give you an example so i was uh, uh in la visiting uh uh, visiting our son in, in LA and walked into Whole Foods and saw a box of cereal. And on the front of the box was how this cereal was produced using water smart grains and like water efficient, you know, healthy soils. And I bought that box. I took a picture of it. And I thought, <laughs> this is awesome. I'm buying the cereal. Thankfully, it was good cereal. Okay. Well, that's good to hear on, on many different fronts. So, yeah, that's that's something that we should be looking for as consumers is uh, products that are uh, grown in a sustainable uh, fashion. And, and to that end, uh, what what kind of legislation uh, could be used to kind of tell growers in California and also in the whole Western United States, 
they grow with uh, drip irrigation or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, I think there, uh, from what I see, you know, it's very expensive. And so there have to be, it's expensive to, to, uh, to change over that infrastructure. And there's also a lot of resistance. So like take, for example, the Imperial uh, Irrigation District in uh, basically in Southeastern California, all the fields are leveled basically from the high point of the irrigation district to the low point and are, are leveled in an angle so that water comes in at the, you know, at the highest level fields and runs through the canals and runs off the fields and back into the canals and then onto the next field and so on. So like changing that over is going to be very expensive. However, I think that we have no choice. I think our government has no choice but to offer the incentives for farmers to do that switch. Whether it's you know low interest loans, you know I don't I, you know I'm not a financial guy, but I I know that it's really really expensive, um, and we should not expect farmers to bear the burden because they are growing food for for our nation and for other nations. I walk into a grocery store in Saskatoon, and and I go to the produce section, and the you know the lettuce is from Salinas and. The berries are from Watsonville. I mean, this is California, you know, California water being shipped up here to Canada. Well, certainly uh, we should we should value those uh, farmers and and uh, they do great work. I guess we should maybe incentivize them to a irrigate more effectively as well as maybe focus on crops that are less uh, water intensive to raise a bit of the cost of the water so that uh, it's they're paying more of the real market cost to society. Yeah, using I, I, I agree. But, you know, we should be aware that that will, that will uh, manifest itself in increased food prices. Uh, but, you know, this is the world that we, this is the world that we live in. And of course, as we run out of water, food prices are going to get, are, are going to get higher. So it, it's better that we control that rather than let it skyrocket when there's no water. Right. I mean, it's a long term, uh, you know, solution, I guess. I mean, I, I I'm willing to bear the cost of higher uh, almond, high, higher costs for almond butter and almonds, uh, you know, as much as I like almonds. Uh, yeah, I think it is something that people can neg- navigate around. I mean, in terms of there are substitutes to buying other products that are less water intensive and still get calories. So, I'm not saying jack up every piece of uh, price across the waterfront. But uh, anyway, Jay, it's been great having you on the program. Uh, You've been listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and we've had Jay Famietti on the program. And uh, thank you so much, Jay, and appreciate uh, your time. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks very much. Uh, Well, uh, follow Jay on his podcast, What About Water? And uh, also... Come back next week. Uh, We'll be uh, having other great guests on the program. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.